Continuing on with our sermon series through this summer, looking at the, the great stories of the Old Testament, these stories that we find in our children's storybook Bibles that we grew up learning. We're pushing deeper into these stories that we would have more than just a childish understanding of them. Before we turn to God's word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer to ask his help as we read and apply his word. Let's pray together. Gracious God, help us turn our attention, our hearts, our affections to you and hear what you will speak through the power of your Holy Spirit this day. For you speak peace to your people through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 14. We're going to pick up at verse 15. This is in the middle of this chapter uh, in which the people of Israel have departed from Egypt and are preparing to cross the Red Sea. Hear now the word of God. It is written. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? And tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud look down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. 
And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Some of you wondered if we were going to spend the entire 13 weeks of this sermon series in the book of Genesis. And we certainly could have, but this morning we're moving on from Abraham to the Exodus. Although we should note that we have skipped over the story of Jacob and Esau, Isaac's sons, which inevitably leads us to the story of Joseph. And this is a story which leads us to the land of Egypt, where the book of Genesis ends. And we pick up in the book of Exodus some 400 years later, where we discover that Jacob's family had done exactly what God had encouraged them from the beginning. They had been fruitful and multiplied and filled the land. This language that is used in Exodus 1-7, and it takes us back to the beginning of Genesis. It reminds us of the mandate that God gave at the beginning of his creation for humans to go forth and to be fruitful and to fill the world and to serve as God's representatives on earth, spreading his glory abroad. And despite how this plan for humanity had been marred by the fall in human sinfulness, despite how it might have appeared that God's plan had been thwarted over the past few weeks, we have seen God's plan to restore humanity, especially through this one man, Abraham, and his family. We remember that it was to Abraham that God had promised to make a great nation and to bless the nations. But there had arisen a new Pharaoh in the land of Egypt in that day, who we are told did not know Joseph and what he had done to save Egypt from famine all those years before. This Pharaoh did not see Israel as a blessing. He was very concerned that Israel had become too many, too mighty. So he had enslaved them and ordered that the male babies born to Hebrew women be killed, be tossed into the Nile River. And this sets up the Exodus narrative. Now, we are focusing on a particular aspect of this narrative this morning, the crossing of the Red Sea. This is the climax of the events that have preceded it. But the Exodus is not just the escape of the Israelites from Egypt. Before that, there was the enslavement of God's people in the land of Egypt. There was the deliverance of baby Moses from the infanticide detailed at the beginning of the book as Moses was placed in a basket, an ark it was called, and placed in the river only to be plucked up from among the reeds in the water by Pharaoh's own daughter. And he was raised within the household of Pharaoh, even with his mother as his nursemaid. It's clear that all of this was divinely arranged in accordance with the purposes of God's holy will. But moving on, there was Moses' call some years later in which God revealed himself to Moses through the burning bush. 
It was here that God instructed Moses to go to Pharaoh and declare that he must let the people of God go for the purpose of worshiping the one true God. And when Pharaoh refused, there were the plagues of Egypt, which culminated in the death of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. And just as an aside, each of these 10 plagues serves as a response to the evils of the Egyptians to the Israelites, functions as an act of decreation and works to dismantle the false Egyptian gods. And before the final plague, there was the institution of the Passover in which the Israelites spread lamb's blood on their doorposts and lintels of all of their houses that they might be passed over in this judgment. And then finally, there was the actual departure of the Israelites from Egypt accompanied by the pillars of cloud and fire in which God was present with his people providing protection and guidance. So when we speak of the exodus, we are speaking of all of these things. And as I've already indicated, we could say much about each of them. An obvious example being the significance of the Passover, which points to the perfect substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, who is called the Lamb of God. But together, these events of the exodus make up the single greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament. It's an event to which Israel would be called time and again to remember. So we don't want to miss the significance of this event in the life of Israel. And there are two significant things that are being accomplished here that we want to examine in more detail this morning. First and foremost, this is an event through which God reveals himself and receives glory. It's an event through which God reveals himself and receives glory. Secondly, this is an event through which Israel becomes solidified as a mighty nation. So it's here that they find their identity as a people. But we also don't want to miss the way in which the Exodus points forward to God's ultimate plan of redemption. As great as this event is in redemptive history, it is but a shadow of what is to come. So first, the Exodus is about God's self-revelation and his glory. God's glory is repeatedly mentioned here in this passage, especially in connection with the destruction of the Egyptians. Why is judgment coming upon the Egyptians. Verse 17 tells us that it is in order that God will get glory. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. It's repeated in the very next verse, verse 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, if we're paying attention at all in this passage, but really through the whole of the first 14 chapters of Exodus, then we won't be able to miss that this is all about God's self-revelation. It's about his identity being revealed. It's about his attributes being made known. It's about his name being made great. 
This is repeated again and again. God made himself known through the burning bush. His divine name is revealed there. His holiness is revealed. His great love for his people, his faithfulness to his promises are revealed. God was also making himself known through the plagues. His hatred of sin, his anger against unrighteousness are revealed. Repeatedly, during the plagues, God declares, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. It's declared before the first plague, and the second plague, and the fourth plague, and twice during the seventh plague, and the eighth plague. And now, at the climax of the exodus from Egypt, we see it repeated again. Now, in our modern, enlightened thinking and sensibilities, we might consider it quite an awful thing to believe that God is a wrathful God. And many today like to imagine God as a kind and gentle old grandfather who's accepting of all people. So it might strike us as particularly repulsive that his wrath is being presented here as bringing him glory. We might feel justified in judging God's actions in the drowning of an entire army. That doesn't seem like something that God should be doing, in our opinion. We should remember that our thoughts are not God's thoughts. And we should remember that Pharaoh and his men were wicked men who had demonstrated their wickedness in the drowning of babies. And the brutal enslavement and harsh treatment of the Israelites, the reality is that the plagues and the destruction of the Egyptian army were divine retribution. These things were just punishment for their sins. They were being treated as they had treated others. But even if they hadn't drowned babies... They were still sinners who lived in rebellion against God and who worshiped false gods. If we look closely, then we will see that God wasn't just judging the atrocities they had committed against the Israelites. He was also judging their idolatry. He did this with the plagues, but it also isn't a coincidence that the Egyptians were defeated and destroyed when? At daybreak. When the sun was rising, as verse 27 informs us, you see, one of their gods was a sun god who was proved here impotent to save the Egyptians from their watery grave. Every sin is an offense against God. And if God is righteous and just, then sin cannot simply be overlooked. It must be dealt with. Justice must be served. Offense must be punished. God declares in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 39 and following, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me, God revealing himself. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand, for I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. 
So God receives glory in this judgment because it is a demonstration not only of the divine attribute of his wrath, but it is also a demonstration of his justice and his holiness. Vengeance belongs to the Lord and will be executed against all of God's enemies. He will set things right. And we as Christians, as God's people, need to learn that we do not need to be apologetic about God's wrath. It is not a blemish on his character. It actually goes hand in hand with his other attributes, his holiness, his faithfulness, his goodness, his love. God will wipe away sin and evil, and this means that he will bring judgment against those who lived in opposition to him and his people. Actually, if God were to ignore sin, if he were to show indifference to evil and wickedness, then that would be a moral blemish on his character. As A.W. Pink states, how could he who is a sum of all excellency look with equal satisfaction upon virtue and vice, wisdom and folly? How could he who delights only in that which is pure and lovely not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile? The wrath of God, Pink says, is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and indignation of divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. Dearly beloved, we need to understand that God's wrath is one of his perfections, just like his love, his goodness, his mercy. And it is not in contradiction to these other attributes. And at the end of the day, whether people want to admit it or not, everyone has a sense that things are not the way they should be. And with this intuition comes a sense that justice is needed. We see it all around us. And whether the justice that is sought in our culture is misdirected or not, whether it is acknowledged as originating in a higher power or not, people are seeking for wrongs to be righted. They are seeking punishment for perceived perpetrators of wickedness. The Bible declares that ultimately God will judge based on his standard, not ours. And his judgments are perfect and are in accordance with his character. But we are not only seeing God's self-revelation through his wrath, we are not only witnessing his glory manifested in his vengeance against the Egyptians, we also see a revelation of his character and his glory in the deliverance of Israel. We learn here then of some of God's other attributes. We learn of God's faithfulness. We learn of God's graciousness and goodness. We learn of God's power. God heard his people's cries and he did not abandon them. And what we find here in Exodus 14 is that God was not only gracious to deliver them, but he was mighty to deliver them. God worked wonders for Israel to bring about their salvation. And he does it in such a way as to demonstrate his power and that all glory belongs to him. 
If we were to go back to the beginning of this chapter, then we would find that God had not led his people down the obvious quick route in their departure from Egypt. There actually was an obstacle-free road that went directly from Egypt to Canaan. They would have been there in no time. But God led Israel instead on another route. In fact, he instructed them to turn back and camp between the Red Sea and the desert. And this effectively trapped them between the sea and the Egyptian army. As one commentator notes, from the standpoint of military strategy, the detour God told the Israelites to take was sheer lunacy. Where we find Israel in chapter 14 then is caught between an inescapable and insurmountable army in an impassable sea. But God had them right where he wanted them. So when Pharaoh saw that Israel was trapped, he pursued them right to his own destruction. But how it all played out was nothing short of miraculous. Now, there are some who have tried over the years to explain Israel's crossing the Red Sea in natural terms. So-called experts have thrown out scenarios like high and low tides and strong winds. But look at what God's word says. God tells Israel to do what is clearly impossible in verse 15. Go forward. The sea was before them, so they couldn't go forward. That is, unless God provided a way where there was no way. And this is exactly what God did. What is impossible to man is possible with God. Instructing Moses to lift up his staff and stretch out his hand over the sea, God divided the sea. And Scripture describes what happened as a strong east wind, which came and created a wall of water on either side of Israel, who walked across on dry ground. So I know that all of you like to go to the beach. Let me ask you this. How many of you have been to the beach during low tide and high winds? and observed the ground dry up and a wall of water appear to your left and to your right. Anyone? Nope. The Egyptians, meanwhile, were in hot pursuit, but somehow they got stuck in the mud. It was dry for the Israelites. It was muddy for the Egyptians. And once all of Israel was safe on the other side and the entire Egyptian army was in the midst of the sea, God again instructed Moses to hold out his hand over the sea and the sea, as verse 26 puts it, returned to its normal course. Does that sound natural to you? The mightiest army in the world was all at once swallowed up, no match for God's power. And we can try to explain this away with natural causes or we can just dismiss it as a made-up story, but we are meant to come to the same conclusion that the Egyptians did before their death. The Lord fights for Israel. This was the hand of God Almighty. He planned the exodus, he executed the exodus, and God receives all the glory for the exodus. Really, the only thing that Israel could do was obey what God instructed them to do, which really they were helpless to do without God's power. 
But God was present with his people, protecting them, guiding them, delivering them. And he did it in such a way that they and the Egyptians would realize that he is God and there is no other. He did it in a way that the Egyptians went to their destruction with his name on their lips. He did it in a way that Israel got to the other side. And what does it say? It says they feared the Lord and believed in the Lord because his kindness leads us to repentance and faith. He did it in a way that forced Israel to realize that there was no hope for them outside of his gracious and mighty deliverance. They were not in a position to save themselves. They were dead. But in the midst of the deepest darkness of the night, just before dawn broke, God rescued them. So God was revealing himself through this event and it was all for the sake of his glory. Second, the Exodus is also about God in accordance with his sovereign purpose, choosing a people through whom to accomplish his plan of redemption. It would be through Israel that God would accomplish his plan to bring salvation to the nations. And we see here in the Exodus, the formation of Israel as a nation to accomplish this purpose. And we remember that God had made promises to Abraham, including promises to make Abraham a great nation, to give to his people a land of their own. But we know that Abraham had only one son with his wife, Sarah. And that son, Isaac, had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And from Jacob came 12 sons. And this is where we are left at the end of Genesis, with these sons and their families in Egypt, where they had been brought by Joseph, whom God had positioned there to save many from famine. And despite how they were being blessed and how they were being a blessing, despite how they were multiplying in number, they were not yet a nation. And now, hundreds of years later, they have, as we've already noted, grown in number as a people. But they are still in this land, which is not the land God promised them, and they are enslaved. They were not then a great nation. The Exodus, though, serves as a pivotal moment in redemptive history. God revealed himself in ways that he had not previously And and with this self-revelation, he was forming for himself the people of Israel. Israel's identity was being established more than just as an interconnected set of families. We see repeatedly mentioned here the people of Israel. They were God's people. They were the ones who had been chosen by him, on whom God had placed his favor. They were the ones called to worship and serve him. They were called by God as his firstborn son. That's what God calls them in Exodus 4 when he instructed Moses to say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. I'm not going to push into this, but we shouldn't miss what happens with firstborn sons here in Exodus and the significance of that moving forward. And now God has worked salvation for Israel, defeating their enemies and graciously delivering them from slavery in Egypt. God was forming Israel to have an identity here, which served to make them into the great nation that God had promised would come from Abraham. 
as D.A. Carson makes clear then, this is not only an exit from slavery and from Egypt. It is reconstituting the people with a new covenant. And if we were to continue reading passage chapter, then we would come to this covenant, the Mosaic covenant being established. And with this covenant, we would find Israel being given the law at Sinai, which identifies for Israel what it is to live as God's people, living holy lives which reflect God's character. And we would find them on the way to the land that God had promised them, first going through the formative experience of the wilderness. But when God gives his people the law, the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, on what basis are they commanded to obey? The commandments begin like this. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It, it is this event, the Exodus, God's gracious choosing and delivering Israel out of Egypt that would mark them. Israel would forever be related to the Lord because of this event. God had placed a claim on them through the Exodus. So at the center of their identity was their salvation. And we will see Exodus, the Exodus referred to again and again throughout Scripture. Psalm 77, Jeremiah 7, Hosea 11. It's in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Nehemiah. All through the Old Testament, we see references to the Exodus. But just as the Exodus from Egypt marked Old Testament Israel, the same is true for all those who belong to God's people by grace today, the new Israel of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And at the core of our identity is salvation by God's grace. We have been indelibly marked by our deliverance from the dominion of darkness, from bondage to sin, and our freedom to love and obey God. It is only through our salvation that we have been marked as those who are God's children, as his family, as those who are called to serve him as his people, as the ones whom he has given a great name. As the Apostle Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once we were not a great people, we were in an enslaved people, children of wrath, but now, by God's grace, we are a people marked by God. We have become, by his grace, a holy nation. At the core of our identity, then, is our salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It isn't something we earned. It was given as a gift by God, from God, it isn't something that we deserve. It is something that we are given by his grace. And from it flows all of our life, our worship of God, our service of God, our purpose to bring him glory, our understanding that we are loved by God and have been adopted as his children in Jesus Christ, our hope in all the promises that God has given to us in the gospel. Our deliverance serves as the basis for all of these things just as it did for Israel. And this leads us very nicely into our third and final point. 
the exodus of Israel from Egypt is not just an act of judgment against Egypt. It's not just an act of gracious deliverance of Israel from slavery. It points to something much larger. And, and we don't want to miss how it applies to us. As great as the event is in itself, it is but a shadow of the great redemption God has planned. You see, just as Pharaoh was drawn to go after Israel in their defenseless position and camped by the sea, so too did Satan believe he had advantage over Jesus when Jesus was handed over to sinful men who tried him, stripped him, beat him, and hung him on a cross. Satan pressed what seemed to be a strategic advantage to death, and it resulted not in the defeat of God's plan, but in the ultimate defeat of evil. Death was crushed by death. And in his atoning death, Jesus gained eternal victory over sin, death, and Satan. God defeats all of his enemies. And if we look closely here, we find that all of Israel is being related to Moses. Their deliverance is a recapitulation of his own deliverance as an infant. It might not be immediately obvious to us, but in the Hebrew, what is translated into the English as the Red Sea is really the Sea of Reeds, which has thrown many off who are seeking to understand what body of water this is that Israel crossed. It's given many liberal scholars what they believe is ammunition to write this entire story off as myth. Dearly beloved, what they have missed is, what they have failed to see is that it isn't necessarily meant to be descriptive of the body of water, but to point us back to Moses' deliverance as a baby where he was pulled from the water amongst the reeds. Moses serves as the mediator between God and his people. And this is why Moses is chastised for crying to God in verse 15. If we look back at the preceding verses, we find it's actually the people who were fussing. Moses had, in fact, exercised great leadership. He had pointed the people to God's character, to God's promises. He had encouraged them to trust in God and to wait for his salvation. Why then did God address Moses in this way? Because Moses represented the people of God to God and God to his people. And we need to understand this because Moses is really pointing us forward to the great mediator who would be the perfect representative of God's people. This is why when Jesus comes, he comes as the new Moses. Matthew ensures that we don't miss this. He tells us that just like Moses had to be saved as a baby from an infanticide ordered by a tyrannous ruler, so too did Jesus. And where do Mary and Joseph flee with their newborn son? To Egypt. So it is from Egypt that God's son comes, bringing new meaning to the words of the prophet Hosea. And Jesus comes on a mountain, bringing the law in the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the one to whom Moses was but a shadow. And Hebrews tells us this explicitly in chapter 3. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus was the one to whom all the prophets pointed. He is the one who comes bringing God's law and simultaneously fulfilling it for us. 
and the deliverance offered in Jesus Christ on the cross on behalf of his people is the redemption from slavery that the exodus of the Old Testament pointed. You see, Jesus Christ accomplishes through his death and resurrection a new exodus, an exodus from the bondage of sin and death, the final enemies of God. And just as Israel was united with Moses, all those who by God's grace are chosen by him for salvation are united to Jesus Christ. So listen to what the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul draws a link between the exodus and baptism. Israel was baptized into Moses and those who place faith in Jesus Christ are baptized into him by the power of his spirit. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Dearly beloved, do you understand the story of the exodus is our story this is our story this is our song we have either been delivered having been brought into union with jesus christ through faith by god's grace and through him have been brought through god's judgment safely to the other side or we are standing on the edge of the sea of destruction and if we are in Christ and we are called to look back on our deliverance through the waters as a testimony to God's grace and strong saving will toward us, we are called to remember our baptism, to find our identity there, and to live as those who are redeemed. But if we are not in Christ, then we need to understand that God will ultimately have victory over all of his enemies. They will be judged and cast down and because the exodus serves as a shadow of what is to come, it really shouldn't surprise us to read in Revelation 18 that the city of Satan and all who are in it will one day be destroyed. How? It will be cast into the sea. And Revelation 19 tells us that the response of the saints to this destruction will be rejoicing and praise. They all cry out with a loud voice, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. So dearly beloved, when the judgment comes, will you be singing God's praises or will you be drowning in God's judgment? Look to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ, call upon his name. He is the only one in whom we have salvation. Pass by faith in him from death to life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you
confessing that we are not worthy of your love, are not worthy of your grace, of your mercy, but Lord, we come crying out for deliverance. For deliverance from the bondage to sin and death and evil. Lord, help us by your grace to place faith in Jesus Christ, to look to him. And being baptized into him by the power of your spirit, may sin be put to death in us and may we be delivered unto newness of life for all of eternity. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. In response to the gospel, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life 